Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Father Michael Kaiser. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. If I scare him already? That question is the evangelistic task. Asking, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the last two times I've talked about outreach evangelism today, I know you're waiting with, with bated breath to find out about those horrible things that the Orthodox Church did in the first millennium that we now condemn as being Protestant and evil. But that really is what we're about. The apostles didn't go out saying, saying, hey, guess what? We're going to have pretty pictures in the church, and we're going to have lots of smoke, and uh, you're going to see vestments like you, know, you, you, you can't see in the temple. They preached Jesus Christ. They witnessed to Jesus Christ. They lived Jesus Christ. A friend of mine who is an Orthodox priest, whom you know, Father Ken DeVoy, who, by the way, was sent back to Korea, uh, and is on the border with the Special Forces Unit as chaplain, uh, waiting to see if they'll be wiped out in the two and a half minutes the Army says they will, told me that, you know, the Marine Corps is a slogan. It's Semper Fidelis, always faithful. He was in the Coast Guard. Their slogan is Semper Paratus, always ready. For an evangelist, the slogan be, should be Semper Gumby, always flexible because there should be nothing out there that we should just immediately dismiss as a means of outreach to the world if, in fact, we're going to confront the world with any kind of of living gospel that can get through to people, call them ultimately to death to self and rising to new life. St. Paul is the first person you think of, of course, from the book of Acts and what have you, as being a primary evangelist in the church. We know the other apostles went out into the world. There are some stories about where they went and what they did, but Paul is the one that we know the most about. And he, of course, is the one who began as a persecutor of the church. So here is a man who, having done his best to stamp out Christianity before it got loose, suddenly has a conversion experience and then goes off to Saudi Arabia for about 16 years to think about that. He would have gone that long. And meanwhile, the life of the church went on. He went down there and learned how to make tents. That's where we get the term tent maker ministry from. When a priest has a secular vocation as well, he's referred to as a tent maker. And then eventually, Barnabas, who was the one who actually founded the church in Antioch, who tends to get forgotten now. He's the patron saint of Cyprus. Well, he's buried on Cyprus. Came to find Paul. And knowing Paul, we can imagine him saying, oh, gee, you finally showed up. Thanks a bunch. You need my help with anything? No. And he says, well, we've started this community in Antioch, and it's kind of unusual, because this was the first Gentile Jewish Christian congregation. Everybody else was up in what in those days the Romans called Palestine. Today it's divided into Jordan and and Israel. 
And they were pretty hardcore, gung-ho, hold of the tradition of our ancestors, Jewish Christians. So they kept eating kosher. They kept all the aspects of the law that they could. And nobody said, don't do that. No. Well, then we get down to Antioch and, of course, find out that, number one, the people in Antioch have not a clue what the word Messiah means. The Jewish Christians are running around saying the Messiah has come. We have seen the Messiah. The Messiah has risen from the dead. The prophecies are fulfilled. Therefore, you should come and be baptized in this new Israel. Not the old Israel anymore. It's a new Israel. He's come to free us and to forgive us from our sins. That became real important after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., because going to the temple was the only place that you could have the sins forgiven. You went, it was, best, it was Yom Kippur, you went on the Day of Atonement, you made your sacrifice, whatever it was supposed to be, and you know your sins were forgiven. Well, once the temple was torn down by the Romans, there was no place where that could happen. It's like taking Mecca away from Muslims. So, they have no place to be forgiven. They, the, the, even the Jews in Antioch were very Grecified. And so they didn't know what the word Messiah meant. They didn't speak Hebrew. In fact, the Old Testament in Greek was done in Alexandria, in Egypt, because the whole people in that area after the Jewish diaspora basically became Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking, Greek-talking peoples, even though whatever their ethnic background was. So Paul is called to come down to Antioch to this community and begin a ministry amongst them. And he does, until, of course, Peter shows up. Peter, whom we also claim is a co-founder of the Church of Antioch, that's kind of chamber of commerce, uh, comes down and, and at first is, is really happy to see what's going on. But then other Jewish Christians come down from Jerusalem and they go to the coffee hour and they about lose their minds. Because there Peter is sitting at a table with a bunch of goyim. He's sitting and eating and drinking with Gentiles. And they probably go up and they, uh, excuse me, here. Those guys are goy. They're not our people. Uh, they don't cut the meat with the meat life knife and the dairy with the dairy knife or anything like that. You know, this is breaking the law. You can't do this. It's going to cause a scandal. So Peter bold person that he always was, draws back and sits only with the Jews. Paul sees this and has a small hissy. And as he writes in the book of Acts, we had no small discussion about this. Which basically means Paul told Peter there's a train leaving town at five, be under it. Now, we get the impression, I think, that Paul just kind of wandered around, you know, looking in high, you want to hear about Jesus, that sort of thing. The fact is, no, he did not do that. Paul planned his work and worked his plan, no matter where he went. The first church, of course, he worked at was Antioch. But he preached in Corinth, he preached in Ephesus, he eventually preached in Rome. Where he planted churches was deliberate and precise. He planted churches in large cities in the Roman Empire. Antioch was kind of a second capital, second city of the empire after Rome. 
Ephesus was a huge center uh, for the Greek goddess Demetra. Uh, that's where they made those little dashboard statues that they put on their chariots when they drove around. Uh, and that's where he got in trouble. He got stoned the first time in Ephesus, Corinth, Macedonia, and like I said, eventually Rome. He wrote, uh, he said he was going to go to Spain. What he was going to do, it is apparent if you look at the maps, was plant churches in every major Roman city there was around the Mediterranean. And he would go there and frequently being recognized as a famous Jewish scholar and preacher, he'd be invited to the synagogue to preach. He would preach about Jesus the Messiah. They would throw him out. Uh, but a few people would go with him, and then he'd go out and amongst the Gentiles, and, uh, you know, he would gather a congregation that way. He was very careful in his church planting. He just didn't give a talk and then say, okay, I'll get back to you in five years. Paul stayed with his communities to guide them and to direct them. In Ephesus, he stayed between two and a half to three years planting that congregation. And this is what he did. They rented a storefront, which was used uh, by a man in Ephesus. I forget what kind of business he was in. I think it tells us in Acts. But the lifestyle then was much different than the lifestyle today. In those days, people got up with the sun and went to bed with the sun. Hence, it was fairly easy to get up and say midnight prayers because you already been in bed five or six hours. You get up, say your midnight prayers, and go back to bed. This was considered quite normal <clears throat> at the time. The writer Tertullian, who was the first Christian to write in Latin, but who eventually fell off the wagon and sat up on top of a mountain waiting for the end of the world with a prophetess, wrote to Christian women married to non-Christian men that they should make certain their husbands understand what they're getting up for at midnight, that they're not going out to meet someone else. They are, in fact, getting up to pray so the husband doesn't get suspicious. What Paul did was rent space in this store at a time when everybody went home to have lunch. So the point, you know, everybody was, it was like Spain. We, we, we go and have, have our uh, siesta time. And yet he continually packed the house. You know, we, he, this guy must have had some time of, some way of communicating to people who normally would have been asleep at that time. He stayed there three years. He trained those he saw as having leadership potential, which he did in all his communities. Timothy being one of those. He raised them up, made them presbyters, heads of the church, and then he would go on to the next place that he thought would be a good place to start a congregation. So what we learn from this is that any kind of missionary evangelism is not something that should be slapdash or chaos or off the cuff. It is something you think about, you plan, and you work on. Somebody else we can look at is St. Justin the Philosopher, sometimes called St. Justin Martyr. St. Justin was, wait for it, a teacher of philosophy, hence the name. And he taught Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all the Greek pagan philosophers. All of the early fathers were well acquainted with pagan philosophy. 
They learned from it. They went to pagan you for crying out loud. So, you know, they knew all of this stuff, and they knew that many of it would precursor Christ, would point to the coming of Christ. So Justin, again, got himself a place over some kind of market. I forget precisely what it was. And during the day, he would teach. Plato said this, Socrates said this, and then drank poison. Aristotle did this. But at night, the word went out that he was there to take on all comers, to field any questions anybody had, uh, to talk to them about the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to deal with any issues that people had regarding them. And he did that for some years until, of course, he was eventually martyred. We know much about the early worship life of the church, the early church, from the writings of Justin. But the fact is, he did more than write. He spoke, he disputed, he confronted. One of the reasons Christianity has become so weakened today, I believe, my opinion, you may reject it if you wish, is that we become fairly weak at the knees. We don't confront. And if we don't confront the world, the world will never hear us. And if the world never hears us, the world will never have a chance to respond to us. We also had many hundreds to thousands of people who were simply street preachers. Okay, from the first, second, third, fourth century, there is plenty of written evidence for Orthodox Christians, not necessarily ordained in any capacity whatsoever. They weren't necessarily bishops or priests or deacons or anything of that sort. Uh, readers, sub, whatever you want to put upon you know, but there were simply people who went out whose lives had been changed because they have encountered Jesus as Lord and Savior and felt they had an obligation to tell people that. The most effective evangelism the church has ever had, and this is from the first century on, is one-on-one. -on -one. People talking to people, not in formal settings necessarily, but at the workplace, in your home, you know, never underestimate the uh, transforming power of chocolate chip cookies and, and, you know, a good beer. Judaism did the same thing. This was not invented by us. The fact is that during the time of our Lord, Judaism was an aggressive missionary religion. They had people who would go from town to town, come in, and talk a bit in the, the town square and then go to the synagogue and teach there and then after a couple of days move on to the next place on the itinerary. Only after the destruction of the temple did the Jews withdraw into their own community and basically focus only on cults, on the keeping of the law, on keeping kosher, etc., etc. Prior to that, they had converted people in Babylon, in Persia, in Egypt, because a lot of pagans, pagans, I'm sorry, we're getting really dissatisfied with this, what's with this hundred gods and a lot of bulls and goats kind of thing. And the idea of one God and an ethical moral tradition, because most of paganism was fairly licentious, was very attractive to them. And there was, they even developed a form of proselyte baptism to bring Gentile converts into the Jewish church. So the fact that we had people going around and preaching just 
on street corners or in marketplaces, or today's equivalent, I suppose, would be the local mall, was not unusual. We picked it up from our background, our roots, our Judaism. There is actually a verbatim account of one such incident that a pagan, in, I'm sorry, uh, encountered in Rome. And this guy just, you know, came into a marketplace. He looked no different than anybody else. He was dressed the same way. He was in toga and sandals and all of this. And he simply stood up and said, part, started speaking and said, Men of Rome, a God has been born in Jerusalem. A man named Jesus Christ has come and was killed and then raised from the dead and forgave our sins. Talking very simply in those kinds of terms. And of terms, and of course, like doing that in Hyde Corner in London, people hoot and hiss and boo or applaud. It takes, you know, some spine to do that, some commitment. Uh, but they did it. And the guy writes, I'm not entirely certain what he was saying, but I will sell all my goods and go to Jerusalem to see what I can find out about this man. I've never had a response like that. Nobody ever sold their goods on the basis of anything I preached. No. So it, it was a very simple, natural way of spreading the gospel. Of course, a few of the guys got you know, beaten, uh, killed, maybe whipped. But they had this overwhelming need to proclaim the gospel because precisely their lives had been changed. The last person I want to mention to you is St. Gregory Thaumaturgus. I'm sorry, that's not the last person. Next last person I want to mention to you is St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, which means wonder worker. Uh, third century, 200s, I think he was born in 213 or something like that. Anybody know why he was called a wonder worker? Hmm. Well, he worked a lot of wonders. Yeah. But what he did was this. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. And he would go into a pagan town, and he would, you know, throw it down with the pagan authorities and say, my God is more, bit more powerful than your God. You say you work miracles, fine. You work miracles. I'll work bigger miracles. It's a signs and wonders contest which today would drive most Orthodox Christians screaming into the restroom. That's Protestant. We can't do that. You know why we say that? Because we don't expect God to do anything. In the first three or four centuries, they actually thought God would act. Remember when Peter and, uh, yeah, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray, and there's a guy sitting out there who's sick panhandling, and says, you know, Give a vet a buck or whatever it is. And Peter says to him, I gold and silver have I none. But he blesses them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and his illness, whatever it is, is healed. They expected God to respond to faith. But we have become so secularized, so weak, so not expecting God to do anything that we have ceased to ask. Our four Orthodox forebears, our grandparents and what have you, did not feel that way. But the weight of secularism of the last century and a half has really begun to weigh even on those who claim to be believing Christians. It's intellectual. 
or it's warm and fuzzy. But it's not challenging, and it's not expecting God to do anything. Because after all, we know that you know, we, he's probably not going to listen to us or respond to us. But in those days, they did. So St. Gregory would go into town, you know, beat the, beat the rump off the pagans, and establish a congregation there. And again, he would stay there pastoring them until he discerned somebody who had the leadership potential to be made a presbyter. And since he was a bishop, he could just go ahead and ordain him. And then he'd head out to the next town. And he would, this, this was his traveling roadshow. This is what he did all the time uh, that he was a Christian. The last person I want to mention is probably more familiar to you, and that is our father, Patrick, the Enlightener of Ireland. Now, most of you have probably a hasty sense of the story. But Patrick was a uh, Celt, but he was a British Celt. He was captured for slavery by Irish Celts. That's my people. And we really like to have other people do the work for us, if at all possible. So he was picked up and taken to Ireland and made a slave. He was probably 16 at the time. Uh, his father was a deacon in the British church. But Patrick admitted that he, uh, yeah, he was kind of a backslider. You know, he'd show up in church on Sunday, most Sundays. But, you know, other times he would do other things. Well, for all the time he was in Ireland, he herded sheep. He herded sheep during the day. He herded sheep at night. He had to keep the sheep together. And as he intimates, he says, you know, you either figure out someone to talk to or you go hopelessly mad. So he talked to God. And he would say the Psalms from memory. He had at least learned them. By the way, you know, to become a bishop in the Orthodox Church, you're supposed to know the Psalter by heart. Sure you do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Most of them are lucky to get through Psalm 51 when they're sensing. But that's what the canon says. You must know the Psalms from, by heart. Yeah. We should have a contest at one of our archdiocese conventions. How far can you get? Eventually, of course, he escapes and goes back home. And mom and dad are happy to see him, brother and sis, whatever he's got. And he's happy to be back home. But he begins to be bothered by dreams. And these dreams are of Irish people calling for him to come back and to help them, to preach to them. And so finally, although he tried manfully to ignore these for a long time and thus avoid ordination, he realized that he would have no peace until he did what God wanted. So he went either to Larens, which is off the coast of the now French Riviera, it wasn't then, or to Rome, or to both places for education. We know he was sent back to Ireland by the Pope. Whether he was a bishop then, or whether he was made bishop on his way back, or whatever. But he gets to Ireland in the fourth century. He was not the first Christian mission to get to Ireland, missionary. There were missionaries before, there were missionaries in Ireland for a hundred years before him. Most of whom were in the south, and were relatively successful. His immediate predecessor, however, just fell flat on his face. He didn't speak the language, which is a bit of a hindrance if you're trying to preach to people. Uh, he didn't know the customs. 
He eventually redeemed himself in Northern England, but the fact is, you know, the church was virtually moribund and located to a small section of the South when Patrick got there. But you see, Patrick knew the territory. And to do this successfully, you got to know the territory. You got to know the audience you're talking to. You got to know their customs. You got to know their background. You got to know somehow the way you think. This is why, you know, when I was teaching up at the House of Studies, I always asked these and, 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 you know, uh, nice young men who felt they had a vocation to holy orders. What do you read in your home? Because what you read in your home will determine whether you can talk to the culture or not. Well, I read things like uh, The Economist, First Things, you know. Uh, other things like that. A lot of, of secular literature, a lot of secular writing, because that happens to be the world we live in. I mean, 300 years ago, you could have preached to your congregation and quoted in either heat, Latin, or Greek, and they probably would have understood you, but those days are long gone. And so we basically have to go back, again, in my opinion, but I have some experience at this, at talking to people in very simple and direct terms. Terms. The mistake we keep making is that in a time that we refer to as postmodernism, when people don't trust institutions and don't trust authority and things of that sort, we keep running around saying, guess what? We're the true institution. And they can, yeah, right and wander away and have no desire to hear anything we say whatsoever. So we have to shape our message to what the needs, desires, and view of people are. Sometimes it gets so simple it's almost funny. You know, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is not his family name. It happens to me the anointed one. I have had someone once asked me, if the wise men brought gifts to Jesus because it was Christmas or his birthday. The level of knowledge is gone that we used to assume existed in Christian communities. The knowledge of scripture is virtually nil, and that's true for most Orthodox. The knowledge of the Old Testament is non-existent, and that, but yet that's the foundation that Jesus built upon in his teaching and his preaching. If we are going to be successful in our witness and successful in our evangelism, we have to learn again from our past rather than pretending that somehow these things are contrary to Orthodox practice teaching, because they're not. They are not that at all. Semper Gumby. Be flexible. Be certain that people can talk to you in simple terms and honor the Christ who sends you to them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.